0: Be seated, And for those of you who uh, utilize our children's ministry, you can take your children back there now. We run that through first grade, but for those of you whose children stay in the service, they're most welcome. If they get a little fussy, you can uh, just take them out to the kind of common space out there, get them uh, settled down and and bring them back in when they're ready. And so, but we love having them in the service with us. We have been working through our confession, as you all know, and uh, we've been looking at, Um, what uh, the last several weeks, what our confession says about the doctrine of uh, justification. And this morning, I want to read to you paragraph four from chapter 11. It says this, from all eternity, God decreed to justify all the elect. And in the fullness of time, Christ died for their sins and rose again for their justification. Nevertheless, and this is speaking about conversion, they are not justified personally until the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, actually applies Christ to them at the proper time, which is um, the moment that we are saved as Christians. And so that is paragraph four regarding justification. But if you have your Bibles, turn with me, to the book of Exodus, the book of Exodus. And we're going to look particularly at Exodus chapter 20. And I want to think through together verses 1 through 6. And we're going to uh, talk about how we must be a God-centered people. For the, the month of January... We're going to do a short topical series, if you will, and, and it's called State of the Church, and we're going to do that. And then after we do that, we're going to get back into the Gospel of Mark, and this will be my third year um, doing something like this at Deer Park, and I think it's helpful to do a series like this each January just to help um, orient us for the new year. Uh, in many ways, this is a reminder of who we should aim to be as individual Christians, but also who we should aim to be as a corporate people, as Deer Park Fellowship. However, the things that we're going to examine over the course of January—they're not; you, they shouldn't be unique to us here at Deer Park, right? What we're going to consider should be the aim of every Christian. It's what we should be growing in. It's what we should be. Increasing in. And so allow me to read Exodus chapter 20, again verses 1 to 6, and then I'm going to pray. And then we'll begin to get into this text more. The word of the Lord says this And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods. to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Holy God, we thank you again for the opportunity that we have to be here this morning together as your church, to open your word and to consider it together But Lord, we want to do more than just consider it, God. We ask that you, by your Spirit, would use it to truly change us. And so, Lord, we, in that, confess our dependence upon you in all things. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to begin this morning, begin this series over the course of January by considering the, uh, how essential it is for us to be a people that are God-centered. In, in the coming weeks, we're gonna consider how uh, it's important for us to care for one another. I'm gonna talk about particularly us counseling one another. We're gonna talk about uh, the, uh, the importance of us being a people that are content uh, and uh, a people that should be increasing in, our, in the hospitality that we show one another, but all of those good things they flow from us being God-centered. If our lives are primarily oriented around anything other than devotion and worship of the triune God, then the foundation that we stand on, it isn't really a foundation at all. We find ourselves standing on sand. And oftentimes we default to centering our lives on God's gifts. For instance, the gift of friendship, right, or the gift of a spouse, or the gift of children, or the gift of grandchildren, or boys and girls, toys, right? Or for others, right, the gift of a good job that provides financial security for your home. Or the older saints, it could be the gift of the retirement years and the freedom that that provides. Our lives can often be centered around any of these good gifts from God, and they are good gifts from God. However, for our lives to be centered around them would ultimately lead us on a path of misery or a destination that is miserable not one of of true happiness, not one of true delight, because even the good gifts from God, they have been bestowed on us for the purpose of us becoming more God-centered, not less God-centered. And we see this, for instance, in the book of James, James chapter one, verses 16 to 17. Don't be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift, right, Every perfect gift is from above. Right? And it comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Right? These good gifts should cause us to look up to be more. God-centered. So as I said this morning, we're going to consider the essential nature of being God-centered. And as we work through all of this, I'm going to give you some practical considerations as it relates to just diagnosing our struggle with being God-centered. And I've chosen, as you see, Exodus chapter 20 verses 1 to 6 as my primary text. And for those of you that are familiar with with this particular passage of Scripture, you will recognize it as the first two commandments in the Ten Commandments. Right? And before I actually get into the text, let me just give you um, what I think are six helpful presuppositions, which I'm just going to fire off kind of just rapid fire here. I've told you these six presuppositions already in different ways. I've put them before you on the Lord's day, but I think we need to know them in order for us to think through these first two commandments rightly. The first is this, the 10 commandments, they're a summary of God's moral law. Okay. It's not the beginning of God's moral law. It's a summary of God's moral law. The second presupposition is that the moral law of God is divided up into two tables, right? The first have to do with our vertical relationship with the Lord, and the back six deal with, deal with how that vertical relationship with God should impact our relationships with other people. And so the reformers saw it this way, right? The first table of the law, the second table of the law. But we see um, the Ten Commandments summarized that way in the New Testament, a mindfulness of these two tables, Third, we can't keep the Ten Commandments in a way that lead to our justification, right? So if we're looking to the law, if we're looking to Mount Sinai in order to be saved, we're only going to feel condemnation because the law of God cannot lead to our justification. Fourth, Jesus kept the Ten Commandments in a way that led to our justification, right? That's good news for us. Fifth, Jesus did not abolish the moral law of God. In other words, he didn't do away with it. We don't say, well, Jesus died and rose again, therefore I, can, I have the freedom to commit adultery. I have the freedom to steal. I have the freedom to murder, right? That's preposterous to think that way. Six, it's the duty of every believer to seek to joyfully honor the Ten Commandments by the power of the indwelling Holy Holy Spirit from a place of being eternally secure in Christ Jesus. So we should be increasing in, in our desire to joyfully honor the Ten Commandments because the Ten Commandments really reveal to us the character of God whom we should love as Christians. But we do that from being positionally right before God, right? Having our salvation secured by God and Jesus. Now, one more thing <clears throat> a quote to just set us in the right frame of mind as we consider these first two commandments this morning. An old Puritan named Thomas Watson said in his exposition of the Ten Commandments, he says this What's the difference between the moral law and the gospel? And he answers The law requires that we worship God as our creator the gospel that we worship him in and through Christ, right? The moral law requires obedience, but gives no strength, but the gospel gives strength. It bestows faith on the elect, it sweetens the law, it makes us serve God with delight. And so that just kind of helps us as we think through the first two of the Ten Commandments. But if you are taking notes, and kids, if you're looking on with your mom and dad, this is the first thing that we should see, and it connects with the the quote that I just read from Thomas Watson, which is, the foundation of us being God-centered is remembering that God alone delivered us from sin. Now, the foundation of us being God-centered is remembering that God alone delivered us from sin. And I'm gonna spend the bulk of my time here this morning. And we see verse 2 in Exodus 20. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. All right. <clears throat> Many of us know the historical setting of this statement. The Lord, through Moses, he's telling the people of Israel that he alone is the one that delivered them out of Egyptian slavery, right? We know this great story of deliverance as it's detailed in the book of Exodus, but as we read this morning, right, as we we consider verse two, as we consider really any passage of scripture, but as we are looking here at these first two commandments this morning, we do so in the context of the finished work of Jesus Christ, right? Which is a, a greater deliverance than that of the Exodus, right? It's this grand cosmic deliverance, right? We know and confess as God's church that our triune God has delivered us from our bondage to sin, but not only that, right? One of the things that we really have to internalize is that of our deliverance, right? From the, from the, our deliverance from the, the, the beginning to the end being God's doing alone, 100% of it. And as we increasingly remember that, as we increasingly internalize that, so will our peace increase, so will our joy increase. God alone has freed us from the dominion of sin over our lives, and he's freed us from, as well, the penalty of sin in our lives, which is death, right? a, a, a physical death which was conquered through the resurrection of Jesus and will be definitively conquered when we rise from the dead, but also a spiritual death right? that we would live for all eternity as those spiritually dead in the torments of hell. Instead of that, we have been made spiritually alive in Christ, a peace with our maker for all eternity. Think about it this way. We were absolutely helpless to overcome our sin in our own strength. Absolutely helpless to overcome our sin in our own strength. And the reason for that but if you're curious, is because the sin that we indulged in harmonized so well with who we were, right? It fit together well, right? We were born sinners, right? The scriptures clearly teach us that, and the sins that we commit, our actual sins, are an outworking of that sinful. Nature. So, not only were we firmly held and dominated by sin, but we desired the sin that we were so dominated by. Yet God acted. The Father graciously and lovingly planned our deliverance before the world was made. The Son acted according to the will of the Father to accomplish that deliverance, right? To break sin's dominion over us, to rid us of the consequences that our sin earned us. And the Holy Spirit applied the person and work of Christ to our lives, crediting to us the righteousness of Jesus alone. So when Christ bodily raised from the grave, so did we spiritually resurrect We've been freed. We've been delivered. This is the foundation of living a God-centered life. You and I deserve bondage. We deserve slavery. God in his grace, God in his mercy delivered undeserving sinners like you and me. And his delivering of us is based on Christ alone, the one who's worthy, the one who is deserving, right? We have received what Christ alone has earned and because by the power of the Holy Spirit, we, we have union with Christ, therefore what Christ has earned we possess because we possess Christ, or Christ rather possesses us. Now, that all may sound like review and, and I hope that you don't receive that coldly Um, as as if it's a a too familiar message because that's a message we should never get past. That's a message we shouldn't receive coldly. That's a message that should drive us into deeper worship and deeper devotion to God. But if it all sounds like review and we begin to sit here and think to ourselves, I get it, got it, right? Next point. How come so many of us still live as if we're enslaved? Why do we live as if we're still enslaved? Why do we live as if our triune God has not delivered us? And I I see this type of living, this, this lack of mindfulness, this lack of internalizing that God alone has delivered us. I see it work itself out in several ways, but I wanted to mention this morning just two common ways that it often manifests itself. The first way is this. We have a tendency... <clears throat> to maximize our sin and minimize the finished work of Jesus and its application to our lives. Okay, we have a tendency to maximize our sin and minimize the finished work of Jesus Christ and its application to our lives. And perhaps that describes you this morning. All right? You may know doctrinally that you've been delivered by God alone, but perhaps you're constantly anxious. Perhaps you're constantly despairing and you're often paralyzed from making any sort of spiritual progress or having any sort of inward peace. And when you try to fight sin, right, when you try to fight sin, you do it by your own strength. You fight sin as if you haven't been delivered from sin having dominion over your life. And you try to use your flesh in turn to war, to go to war against your flesh, right? Often using carnal weapons to try to overcome your carnality, if you will, right? It's a nasty and depressing, vicious cycle. And listen, if that's you this morning, it's one that's more common than you think. You're not the only one that struggles with it. What's the way out? It's remembering that God alone is the foundation of your salvation. In other words, it's seeing the God centeredness of your salvation. It's seeing the God centeredness of your salvation. You are not at the center of your salvation. Your salvation is not primarily about you. As one pastor, theologian put it many years ago God is the gospel. So you need to be God-centered in the way in which you're thinking about your salvation. It's rooted in God who's unchanging, and it's for the glory of God. And it's good for you and I that salvation isn't primarily about us because we're too fickle of a thing for our salvation to be based on, right? God is at the center, so we need to remember that. Remember God's at the center of the gospel, that should in turn it should motivate you to confess your sins as transgressions against god to confess your sins as transgressions against others and to do so and listen closely to do so without self-pity to do so without self-loathing to do so without hiding right self-pity and self-loathing and hiding it's man-centered. It is not God-centered. It is not humility. It's another form of pride. It's just inverted. Internalizing that God alone has delivered you, it motivates you to repent of your sins in a way that demonstrates, as the Apostle Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, an eagerness to clear yourself. An eagerness to clear yourself. A godly sorrow. Right? How do you do this? How do you practically walk in this type of repentance? another Puritan for you this morning named John Owen, who's immensely helpful here. He's been immensely helpful to me as I've thought through this. He says, first, expect that your fight against sin will be vigorous and hazardous. It'll be vigorous and hazardous. It's, it's about the things of eternity, so why wouldn't it be? The, the Christian walk, it isn't an easy walk. And the God-centered man, the God-centered woman, the God-centered kid increasingly knows this, Right, grows in this sort of view. It's one of dying to yourself. It's finding your life by losing your life. Yet it's not the type of dying to yourself like those hypocrites who would fast and disfigure their faces so that people would notice them, right? Matthew chapter 6, verses 16 to 18, It's not the type of dying to yourself that's a life of legalism or a life of misery. This type of dying to yourself, it's your joy because Christ is your treasure and he's secured your salvation. So expect a vigorous and hazardous fight with sin all the days of your life. Don't be surprised. Don't get discouraged, but remember that you'll endure because you belong to Christ and know that it's your joy to fight in these vigorous and hazardous battles because Christ is your fixed joy, the foundation of your joy. Secondly, Owen says to know your enemy. You should know your enemy. Get Acquainted with all the ways that you are particularly susceptible uh, to be defeated and to despair and forgetful and become sulky and embittered and angry and paralyzed. He says, know the ways and the methods and the advantages and the occasions by which you are tempted. Right, many people get bogged down here because they aren't willing to practically address and eliminate the ways or the methods or the advantages and occasions that they are tempted toward sin. And why is that the case when you bottom line it? Why is that the case? As we'll talk about in a moment, it's because they're building their lives on some other foundation. They aren't God-centered. They, they have centered their lives around something else or someone else. Third, Owen says, load yourself up daily with the things that are destructive to your various lusts. Load yourself up daily with the things that are destructive to your various lusts, to your your sins. In other words, labor in your spiritual disciplines. Labor in your spiritual disciplines. Are you gathering regularly? Are you reading the word? Are you constant in prayer? Are you living, and this is critical as well, are you living in real biblical accountability? In other words, who do you submit to? Who do you submit to? Fourth, he says, never think your lust is dead because it's quiet. All right? Give it new wounds every day. In other words, the work of, the, of mortifying your sin It's never over. It's never finished this side of eternity. So continue to labor. Continue to labor. And then fifth and foundational, and this brings us back to our overarching point, point one. It supports everything else. In other words, Owen reminds us that it can only be done if you've been delivered by God through Christ. And all of this work can be done only if you've been delivered by God through Christ. So as you effort, right, as you labor, you have to do so while you're gazing at the glory of God through Christ Jesus, through your sufficient Savior. This is foundational for what it means to be God-centered. Remember your deliverance, your security in Christ, and allow that to shape the way that you flee sin. A second common way that we forget that we've been delivered by God alone is evident through self-righteousness, right? It's evident through self-righteousness, right? And so if one, one pitfall is maximizing sin and minimizing the finished work of Jesus, another one is self-righteousness. The self-righteous person has genuinely forgotten the deliverance of God, right? This person looks at the sins of others and loathes them and, and thinks and behaves as if they're more deserving of the grace of God than the person that they're judging or the person that they're perhaps doxing. Right, this individual claims Christ but walks as if they're deserving of his grace. They stare in judgment at the sins of others while downplaying their own sin. Right, this is man uh, a man-centered way to view your justification. It's certainly not a God-centered way. Right? If this is you, you would do well to take, the, take on the, the posture of the Apostle Paul who called himself what? The worst of sinners. Right? The worst of sinners. First Timothy chapter 1, verse 15. You'd do well to consider the sinister nature of, of self-righteousness. You would do well to just consider your sins more, to be honest. To think about them more. And see how your sins are deserving of eternal punishment. So we have to remember the deliverance of God. That's foundational to us being a God-centered people. Secondly, to be God-centered, God must be the priority of your life. Right? To be God-centered, God must be the priority of your life. Verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. All right? Here Thomas Watson again on this. I love the way that he puts it. To trust anything more than God is to make it a God, right? To trust anything more than God is to make it a God. That's helpful for us to consider as we think through that first commandment there, right? That quote alone, it should demonstrate to us that we all make gods, right? We all make gods. None of us are off limit here. As I said earlier, we even make good gifts into ultimate things. And a lot of times, what we're unwilling to give up, right, in order to be spiritually healthy, is an indicator of what we are worshiping that isn't God. Right? What we're unwilling to give up is an indicator of what we're worshiping that isn't God. Right? What or who is the priority of your life? And a lot of times you can look at what causes you anxiety. You can look at what knots you up on the inside, right in your gut, in order to answer this question. What are you obsessing over? Where does your mind constantly drift? What are you, you're distracted, right? Your kids are asking you something or your spouse is asking you something. They've got to ask it to you about 10 times before you even first hear them because your mind and your heart are somewhere else obsessing over something, right? What bearing does the presence and worship of God have on your moment-by-moment decisions, or interactions? It's another question that we can ask ourselves. How do we prioritize God? One of the ways is we prioritize God by fearing God. We should be people that fear God, which is a a familial reverence and honoring. Uh, That's the third commandment, by the way, the the right reverence of God, even his name, we should revere. And, And when you fear God, the benefit of that, one of the practical outworkings of that is that you don't fear man you don't fear man it can be so easy to fear man can't it? it's such a a prominent temptation right husbands and wives do this and how they interact with one another right maybe church members do that with other church members and how they interact with each other right we do this when we engage with our present culture that's hostile toward the claims of Christ right and the particular commitment that Christians must have and a society like ours, right? We fear man more than we fear God, right? Think through those who've gone before us, right? Those martyrs whose God-centeredness, their fear of God drove their faithfulness to him amidst immense conflict, right? Think of the prophets and the apostles who suffered immensely because of their public commitment, to Christ. Think of Jesus himself, who in his humanity submitted to the will of the Father and went to the cross to deal decisively with our sin. So to prioritize God is to fear God. To prioritize God is to also trust him with our lives. Do you trust God? Again, that gets back to Watson's quote. Do not put your trust in princes and human beings who cannot save, Psalm 146, 3. Do you trust God with the, truly, right, not Sunday school answer, but truly, do you trust God with the particulars of your life? It all sounds good in theory, but in the comings and goings of your life, with circumstances that are outside of your control, right, do you trust God with the particulars? Or do you have to control everything, right? Do you have to control every situation? Do you have to control the decisions of other people to get the way that you want, right? Controlling people are not God-centered people, right? People who look for saviors and earthly institutions are not God-centered people. Put your trust in the Lord. To make God the priority of your life is also to love him, is to love him to to have your affections warmed by him right and to be comforted truly comforted by his nearness to you again it, it you know to contemplate the law of God right coming from Mount Sinai that, that communicates us to us the transcendence of God and the otherness of God and the holiness of God and we know as we read this again through the lens of the gospel that he's not just transcendent, but He's imminent. He's near us. He's close to us through Christ and through the indwelling Holy Spirit for those of us that are Christians, right? Are you devoted to Him, not just in external ways, observable ways, the things that you're doing, but also just inwardly? Again, are your affections, are you you inwardly treasuring Him? Are you seeking to regularly draw near to him, to walk in nearness with him. Now again, what are some practical ways in which we can diagnose whether or not God is the priority in our life? And I just have a, a, a few things to mention. And again, I, and a lot of this can it can can target the heart. Some of this can target external behaviors, but, but as we seek to diagnose, is God the priority of our lives, or are we fixated on someone else? Are we fixated on something else? Or are we trying to be controlling in some way? But first, women, does the way that you speak to your husband demonstrate that God's the priority of your life? And does the way that you speak about others or about circumstances that frustrate you demonstrate that God is the priority of your life? Do you hold resentment in your heart for another image bearer? For those of you that are parents, are you measured and self-controlled towards your kids? I mean, who is your God? Who are you mindful of? Who is the priority? Men, are you providing for your home financially? The Bible says that a man who doesn't provide for his home is behaving worse than an unbeliever. First Timothy five eight. Are you providing for your home spiritually, not just financially, but also spiritually? Does your presence and attentiveness in the home demonstrate that you're mindful that you and your family shall have no other gods before Yahweh, right? Are you setting the spiritual temperature of the home? Are you cultivating a Christ-centered environment that allows for free grace to be offered when sin is confessed and repented of? What would your wife and children, or who would your wife and children say that your God is? What are the time investments that you're making? How are you spending your time? To the older saints in the congregation this morning, how are you spending your golden years? Can you truly evaluate these years, evaluate your habits, your engagement, or your lack thereof with God's people and say that you have no other gods than the triune God? What investments are you making in younger believers? Singles, are you content in the Lord or is your happiness contingent on some future that you desperately want? Are you using the time that you have mindful of the Lord, your God? Kids, Are you honoring your parents? Do you treat your siblings or your friends with kindness? For those of you that are in school, are you working hard as unto the Lord? We all have ways in which we fall short, don't we? None of us this side of eternity prioritizes God consistently. This is why we need Christ. But because Christ died and resurrected in this world, and because the Holy Spirit of God lives in us, a good target for all of our days, is to make God the priority of our lives. And when we do this, it does have an obvious change on our character. It has an obvious change on our character. Our commitment to God, our prioritizing God in our lives, it doesn't stay out in the ether. right? Our commitment to him, which again flows from his commitment to us, it shapes us morally. Right? It shapes our moral character. It sanctifies us. It conforms us more into the image of Jesus. This is God-centered living. We must not trust in anything more than God. Finally, to be God-centered, we must worship God rightly. To be God-centered, we must worship God rightly. Rightly is the, <clears throat> the key word there. Right? So not only is God to be the priority of our lives, right? The one who takes the center seat in in the throne room of our hearts, but the right worship of him must be prioritized. That's what the second commandment is about. The second commandment is about right worship, right worship. You shall not make for yourself, verse 4, carved image any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water underneath you shall not bow down to them nor serve them for i the lord your god am a jealous god visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments again that old puritan thomas watson can help us see this command more clearly. He says this, in the first commandment, worshiping a false God is forbidden. In the second commandment, worshiping the true God in a false manner is prohibited, right? That's the bottom line of verses four to six. Now, the commandment specifically speaks of images, and that's why I believe we need to be careful about images of any person of the Trinity, including Jesus, What are the purposes of images if not to fill our imaginations with thoughts about the thing that's imaged? The second commandment forbids imaging of deity, Father, Son, and Spirit. But the the overall point that we should see here is that a God-centered people give careful consideration to how they worship the Lord. This doesn't mean that we throw aside this specific commandment about images of the triune God, not at all. We have to obey there too. But this commandment shows us that God's to be worshipped according to his prescription, not according to our imaginations. In other words, we don't decide how God will be worshipped. We don't have that authority. You and I do not have that authority. Our God is not like the gods of the pagans. Therefore, our worship of him must be different. Consider this from another passage, Deuteronomy 12, verses 1 to 4, to help bring this into more focus. These are the statutes and judgments. This is going into the promised land here, instructions from Moses. To be careful to observe in the land which the Lord God of your fathers is giving you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. You shall utterly destroy all the places where the nations which you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And you shall destroy their altars, break their sacred pillars and burn their wooden images with fire. You shall cut down the carved images of their gods and destroy their names from that place and get, get this verse four, you shall not worship the Lord, your God with such things. Right. That is God placing an emphasis on how he is to be worshiped, right? Right worship, right? Israel, upon coming into the land, that the Lord promised them, they were charged to tear down all the places where pagan nations worship their gods. Right. And the reason the Lord told them to do this. It wasn't even primarily because they were going to turn and worship those false gods. That's not what the point of that passage I just read you, but it was because they might worship him, the one true God, the way that pagans worship their gods. And that's prohibited. That's not allowed. How we worship, it matters. How we worship matters. Think about it this way. If how we behave demonstrates what we truly believe, because at the end of the day, We can all have good, nice and tidy, orthodox statements of faith, can't we? We can have a nice, tidy, orthodox statement of faith here at Deer Park Fellowship. You can write 10 points about what you believe and put it on your blog if you want, right? But the way in which you behave demonstrates what it is you truly believe, right? How you behave demonstrates what you believe. That's the bottom line. And the same is true of our worship. How we worship demonstrates practically what we believe to be true about the God that we worship. And if our worship is thoughtless and casual, then that's a picture of how we view God. Now, let me apply this in just two quick ways for us. First, this extends every aspect of our lives, doesn't it? We're to live distinctly as God's people. We're the salt of the earth, right? Which means that the way in which we live should have a an impact on the world that we live in, right? But we're the salt of the earth, Matthew 5 verses 13 to 16. And the reason that's the case is because there's no God like our God, right? 1 Samuel chapter 2 verse 2. And we all know that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we're to do to what? The glory of God. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 31. So in a real sense, we need to think about how every aspect of our lives should reflect worship to the Lord, each moment and opportunity to glorify God. We're to live before the face of God, right? We're not to live our lives in such a way that, that God has no bearing on it, right? We gather here on Lord's Day, and then Monday through Saturday, there's a complete disconnect about who our allegiance is to, who it is that we worship, right? The coming and goings of our lives should look different than those who live without God, There should be an orientation in our inner person, a mindfulness of our union with Christ, us being in him as we read at our call to worship, Ephesians chapter 1. We should take our anxieties to him knowing that he cares for us, 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 6 to 7. We should be quick to confess sin and to repent of sin, Psalm 32, 5. We should live at peace with one another so far as it depends on us, Romans chapter 12, verse 8. And we should work, we should labor before the Lord, chapter 3, verses 23 to 24. But let me just take us to the second table of the law for a few minutes, just the back six commandments, since we've been considering the first two. Right. I'm going to put them positively and negatively for us. All right. We should honor our parents, boys and girls, but this also includes different types of authorities in our lives. All right. We're not anarchists, in other words. Exodus chapter 20, verse 12. We should not murder or hold anger in our hearts, which means that we should also seek to preserve life. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. We should not commit adultery or be consumed by our inner lusts, which means that we should also uphold biblical marriage and sex as a good gift from God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14, and Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 to 30. We should not steal which means that we should also live and here in the States vote in a particular way that helps to protect the private property of individuals. Exodus chapter 20 verses 15 and Luke 19 verse 8. We must not slander anyone, which includes speaking beyond what we know about individuals or speaking before we have the full picture. Exodus chapter 20 verse 16, right? We often see this which is just the thoughtless things that we say about others or situations, especially in like breaking news moments, right? We must not covet what others have and therefore not help to advance ideologies that take from others to satisfy covetous hearts. Exodus chapter 20, verse 17, right? This is one of the key worldviews, I think, that drives our society at large. It's an aspect of Marxism, which we hear about all the time nowadays, right? There's this unquenchable, unquenchable lust for what others have. And perhaps our overly connected digital age has exacerbated this particular sin in our hearts. But the solution often being advanced is to satisfy a covetous spirit by taking what's not yours, right? Seeing the overlap with stealing here, right? Instead, Christians should model contentment and preach a message of contentment in Christ. But the point is this, a God-centered person lives in a particular way, right? And this is the way God prescribes and it brings honor and glory to him. This is why the 10 commandments are so useful for us. The second way that we can apply this, this is the last thing I wanna mention this morning, is a more obvious way perhaps to us and it's the gathering every Lord's day, right? First, unless there are any unique circumstances that prohibit us from gathering, we should gather Even on your vacation, you should find a God-centered church and gather with that God-centered church, with the saints there. God wants us to be a gathering people one day a week. That's the fourth commandment, by the way. And what what we do when we gather, it matters. How we gather matters. This is why we organize our service a particular way on Sundays. We're not gathering for a concert or for some musical performance. We're not gathering so that I as the pastor can catch you up with what's been going on in my life or give you some sort of TED talk, right? We're gathering to meet with God, right? We're gathering to hear from God and we're gathering to remember that our triune God is drawn near to us through the person and work of Jesus and he's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our attention. He's worthy of our reverence. He's worthy of being the absolute focal point for the entire service. And it's good for us that he's the focus because that's what we need. That's what we need. That's what nourishes us. That's what encourages us. That's what pulls us out of the pit of despair. And he's prescribed for us that we know him as we read his word together. All right, we know him as his word is preached. We know him as his word and doctrines are proclaimed through song and remind us of what we know to be true. We know him as we pray and as we participate in the sacraments. It's right, so when we engage with his method of knowing him, of worshiping him, that we draw close to him and we're truly reminded of who he is and who we are. And we're encouraged by that. Right? And God says that we need to do this at least once a week together as the bride and body of Christ. So that's what we do. So this morning we're challenged, Lord willing, all of us, this Deer Park Fellowship, to be God-centered. Right? That's the foundation. It should be the foundation of our lives, right? To be God-centered. Knowing we've been delivered and knowing When we think about that rightly, our deliverance rightly, when we 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 internalize that, right? We can begin increasingly to make God the priority of our lives and the right worship of him, the priority of our lives. Westminster Shorter Catechism says, we were made to glorify God in what? Enjoy him forever. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. God, we thank you for this time that we've had in your word. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to increasingly be people that are God-centered, Lord. And we love you. We thank you for delivering us. Help us to make you the priority of our lives and help us to care about the way in which we worship you. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen.